20 to 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, at one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard of it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where very many of you work yet, uh, but I wonder if you've ever experienced in your workplace uh, people playing what's known as office politics. You know what I mean by that? When people... They just, you can tell by the way that they're, they're saying things or doing things, happening to mention things or do certain things uh, when the boss is around, maybe. Things that make themselves look good, prop themselves up. Or maybe you don't even prop themselves up. Maybe you just make other people look bad. When people play office politics, they're really, you can tell, just kind of trying to look out for themselves. Uh, they're just trying to look out for Who's number one? They, they want to see themselves get up a, a little bit further ahead. And sometimes that means pushing others down. And, and they're willing to do that, to make that sacrifice. They're willing to manipulate things a little bit to get their way, to get the position that they want, the, the raise that they want. Maybe just the, the respect or honor or friendship that they want. And what you'll see if you work at a number of different places, probably see that the, the seeds of this rest in Every human heart. You can see this in all kinds of different businesses, all, all kinds of different schools. And what we see in this passage, shockingly, is that the seeds of it are already in the early Christian church. As Jesus is just beginning to gather people for himself, just beginning to equip the disciples to go out, there, there's some of these seeds of office politics, some of these seeds of selfishness, of putting yourself first. And what we see in this chapter and the chapters leading up to it is Jesus has started talking about his kingdom. You might know that's a big theme. And what happens not too long after he brings up the idea of his kingdom, the disciples start bickering about, in Matthew chapter 18, who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom? And then in Matthew chapter 19, they start asking questions, what this, what's this kingdom going to look like? Is it going to be worth it for people like us who have given up so much Jesus What's our role going to be? And Jesus tells them they're going to get a hundred times everything they've given up. They're actually going to raise with him, beside him, on twelve thrones. Which sounds magnificent, doesn't it? Reigning with Jesus in his eternal kingdom on twelve thrones. But just the next chapter, 
we have this passage. James and John, they separate from the group. They come up to Jesus with their mom. And they start making sure that they won't just get any thrones. They, they want to have the best thrones. The ones at Jesus' right hand and his left hand, that they might have particular honor and prestige and power and authority beside Jesus himself. And so even the disciples here seem to be concerned with getting glory and status for themselves. And this is a critical passage because you can imagine how if this kind of thinking continues to fester, especially in the disciples themselves, this could be devastating for the church early on, couldn't it? Just as this kind of thinking, this kind of selfishness, self-centeredness, if it festers in our lives, it's destructive. It can destroy churches. It can destroy friendships. Maybe you've experienced that. It can destroy families as well. This self-centeredness and concern for your own status and your own glory and getting what you feel you deserve, even at the detriment of others. But yet, it seems as though this is the way to get ahead in the world. But what Jesus tells us in this passage is this is not actually the way to get ahead. Jesus is going to confront this problem in the early church and teach us the way to true greatness. Specifically, he teaches us the way to true greatness in his kingdom. And what we'll see is that it comes, first of all, not by seeking our glory, but God's glory. And secondly, not by being served, but by serving. So first of all, not by seeking our glory, but God's glory. And so James and John here, they're, they're being selfish, and they come up with this little scheme. It seems kind of clever, doesn't it? Well, what they do is they go behind the back of the other disciples, and they come up to Jesus with their mother. You might wonder, why with their mom? Seems kind of strange. Uh, a lot of people discuss what reason that might be. And most people agree that it's probably to tug at Jesus' heartstrings a little bit. The, the request seems a little bit more agreeable coming from their mom, right? Not, not from them. You can imagine their mom saying, Oh, well, my two sons, they, they've been so close to you. They're such good boys. Maybe, can they have the closest thrones to you? But more might be going on here. Many people believe uh, that James and John were actually Jesus' cousins. And so they come to him with their aunt. They're pulling the, the family relationship card. Asking Jesus for a little bit of maybe nepotism here. Like, come on, for your, for your family. Can't these two, these two men have the, the best seats? But we shouldn't get distracted by the fact that James and John's mom is the one asking the question. Because what we need to know is it's not just a mom trying to look out for her kids. But this is actually something living, a desire living in James and John's heart. They're the ones asking the question. You can see that in the parallel passage in Mark 10. Mark doesn't even mention their mother because she's not really important to the story. He just says that James and John came and asked the question. It's not relevant that they did it through their mother. They were the ones asking. Likewise, you can see in this passage, James doesn't, or Jesus doesn't direct his answer to the mom, but to the disciples, to James and John themselves. And so James and John, they're concerned uh, about their, their eternal positions. They want greatness in Christ's kingdom. And they're willing to do some shady business, some office politics to try and get there. And this question, like so many of our questions can, it reveals a lot about them. What's on their mind and what's on their heart. And first of all, we should notice this this shows something good that's on their mind, something good that's on their heart. They actually have one little thing right in this question. 
Because this question seems to come from a place of faith, doesn't it? We, we need to try and get our minds into what's going on here and set the scene. So Jesus is not rich. Jesus does not have a huge following at this point. Jesus absolutely does not look like a king, does he? He looks like the furthest thing from a king. He has no army or weapons or land. He's not acting like a king. But Jesus had told them that he was going to be a king. He had told them he was going to rule. And what we see in the the chapters leading up to this passage, Jesus had set with urgent purpose to go to Jerusalem. If you know anything about Jerusalem, that's the place where kings reigned from. And so seeing where Jesus was heading and what he was saying, James and John, they step up. They say, okay, if Jesus is going to Jerusalem, we're going we're gonna to go here. Hey, he must be getting ready to ascend to the throne, and we're going to ask if we can sit at his right hand and at his left. And so there's some faith in this question. But what this question also reveals is that James and John were deeply confused about the nature of Jesus' task and the, the nature of his kingdom as well. And they really should have realized that Jesus was going to do something very different than they could have possibly imagined. If you look at our text, you'll see why. Specifically, if you look at the last three verses right before our text. Because there, Jesus had just said something that should have crushed any idea that they had, that Jesus was going to go up and ascend the throne right away, and they could have sat beside him. Because there we read together in verses 17 to 19, As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus has just explained for the third time, in the most shocking, vivid imagery, what his mission is. What is just about to happen to him? And what is James and John's response? They come to him with their mom, and they ask if they might have positions of highest honor in his kingdom. Jesus is reaching the climax of laying down his honor and glory and even his own life. But James and John, with their sinful natures that are a lot like yours and mine, they're too distracted to even understand his teaching. They're too busy looking at themselves and what they want and what they've got going, what they're going to get. They don't look at Jesus. They don't look at his mission. They don't look at what he's saying. And so this question that the disciples ask, they show that they they don't understand Jesus' kingdom. They don't understand Jesus' work. And finally, they, they don't even understand themselves. They don't understand their unworthiness. They don't understand what needs to happen for them to be saved and to enter into Christ's kingdom at all. Jesus is about to go and die for their sins and they're asking for favors. That he might rule and be glorified alongside him. They ask as though they might deserve that. And yet, in spite of this ignorant and prideful question, imagine you were in Jesus' shoes. How would you respond to these men who just came to you hiding behind their mom right after you said you were about to suffer and be handed over and die? How would you respond to them? But how does Jesus respond to them? To this ignorance and pride, he responds with such grace, such kindness, such patience. 
He simply says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you capable to drink, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Now we need to realize to drink from someone's cup is an expression. Uh, Most basically it just means to share in someone's experience. And so Jesus is asking if they want to be glorified beside him in his kingdom, if they can come to this glory in the same way that he's going to, if they can share in his experience with him. And so in context of what we just read, sharing in Jesus' cup, it means horrific suffering, doesn't it? Uh, we just read together how he is talking about how he's going to be crucified and handed over and mocked and killed. And looking at the broader context of Scripture as well, we can, we, we can hear more about this cup that Jesus is about to, to take up and to drink down to the dregs. We sang about this earlier in Psalm 75, verse 8. In the hand of the Lord... There is a cup with foaming wine, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's the, the, Jesus is talking about the cup that wicked people deserve to drink. The cup of all of God's wrath, his heavy wrath against our sin. Jesus is talking about the cup that James and John, they should experience. They should drink. He's talking about the cup that you and I Because of our sin and unworthiness, we should have to drink this cup. It's the cup prepared for all those who have rebelled against God and fallen short of His glory. And each and every sinful man and woman deserves to drink it. But instead, for all the citizens of His kingdom, one innocent man, the one innocent man, is willing to drink it instead. As Jesus has just mentioned, his cup isn't going to include intense physical suffering, being mocked and beaten and crucified. But that's just the tip of the iceberg for the cup of God's wrath against sin. By far the deepest suffering of the cup of God's wrath was experienced by Jesus on the cross. Because during the midst of this unbearable physical suffering, that's when the Father was going to pour out his wrath on him. And the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. And as Jesus Christ experienced the full weight of hell on his shoulders, the curse that you and I deserved, Jesus would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's so important for us to try and wrap our minds around this, but we just can't, can we? To try and understand that the, the wrath that we deserve for our sin and the full weight of this cup of God's wrath that Jesus drank down drain dry for us. But I really appreciate the powerful way that R.C. Sproul tries to describe this. He tries to describe the curse that Jesus was bearing for us. And so as you might know, the curse is the opposite, kind of the antithesis of a blessing, right? Well, can you think of any really well-known blessings? There's one that we hear each week over and over again from Numbers chapter 6. Each week, you should hear these uh, familiar words if you come here often. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What R.C. Sproul does, since the curse is the antithesis of a blessing, he just flips that blessing on its head. And just imagine these words being uttered over us being uttered over Jesus Christ as he bears the full weight of God's wrath for our sins, as he drinks down the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. R.C. Sproul flips this blessing in this way. 
He says, May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment with no grace. May the Lord turn His back upon you and remove His peace from you forever. Maybe that, that can begin to give us a sense of the cup that Christ is talking about here. The cup that Christ was about to drink in our place. The curse that we deserved. A cup so awful that in the Garden of Gethsemane, in anticipation of drinking it, the Son of God Himself, so much more powerful than you or I, He was in agony thinking about what was coming. Jesus Himself was brought down to His knees. We read in Luke 22 that His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground because of the cup He was about to drink for you and for me. That was the way to the throne for Jesus Christ. That was the cup he was about to drink, and it did not look glorious. And the question we have to ask, of course, is, why would Jesus ever do this to himself? Why would he be willing to go through all of that? Why would that be the road to glory? And we read in Matthew 26 that he was willing to do it because he wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about himself but he was thinking about how this was the way, the only way for the cup of God's wrath to pass away from people like you and people like me and people like James and people like John. So this cup of God's wrath that who could bear to drink it? Jesus could drink it thinking of you and thinking of me, thinking of the salvation he was winning for us. And he could also do it thinking about his father, and the, glory, the glorification of his great name. So this, this is what Christ is doing in this passage. He's come to earth and laid down all of his glory and honor and blessing. And now he's willingly taking on this cup of wrath instead. And as he's getting to the climax of doing this, James and John come looking only at themselves. Uh, Jesus is at the climax of looking away from himself and, and sacrificing himself for others. James and John are trying to look how they can get a little bit ahead. Where Jesus was going to be humbled, they craved to be a little bit more exalted in his kingdom. And so in response to their request, Jesus asks, If you think you should have glory beside me in my kingdom, can you drink my cup, James and John? And they say, yes. Thankfully, Jesus is kind. He's kind with us even in our ignorance. And again, somehow, Jesus does not lash out at them for this arrogance and this unbelief. On his way to die, Jesus is kindly assuring him that they will drink from his cup. And that should make us sit back for a minute. What does that mean? We just heard about the cup of God's wrath that none of us could ever drink. How could we? The reason Jesus came to drink it is because we could not. But instead, Jesus tells them in some sense that they will drink from his cup. And so, of course, James and John, they, they wouldn't have to drink from the cup of God's wrath, not in the same way that Christ had. Christ drained it dry. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But instead... Well, what Jesus is saying is that by God's grace, in time, 
James and John and the rest of the disciples, they, they would grow. They would grow in their faith. They would grow in their knowledge of Christ and their kingdom. As they came to know more about the love of God, the love of Christ for them, they would stop looking at themselves, and more and more, they would look to Christ. They would look to God and to His glory. And then, they too would be willing to suffer. Suffer not just so that they could get themselves ahead, but suffer so that God could be glorified, and that others would come to know Him as well. And so what James is pointing to, or Jesus is pointing towards here, is the fact that James and John would become great leaders in the early church. But they wouldn't do it for their glory. In fact, they, they wouldn't be glorified at all. What Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4 is that what the apostles, what the disciples became like, they became like the scum of the earth. They weren't respected. They, they didn't have fame. They didn't have fortune. But while Jesus Christ was exalted in their lives and in their words, they became less so that he might increase. For John, this would mean that in his old age, he would become a prisoner. You might know from Revelation that he ended up a prisoner exiled on a prison island called Patmos. For James, we read in Acts chapter 12, it wasn't too long after this, but he would die as one of the first Christian martyrs. They would come to the point where they weren't looking at themselves, they weren't looking at their own lives, they weren't looking at their own glory or their own status. But they were looking to Christ and they were willing to give up everything for Him. And so finally, Jesus goes on in our passage to finish His reply, saying they will share in His cup of suffering in a sense. But more than that, He tells James and John that they don't need to worry about where they end up in the kingdom. Jesus says that these positions that they've asked Him about, Jesus Himself actually isn't worrying about them. But they're not for Him to grant. The God the Father has already prepared them for those who have been graciously chosen to occupy them. And, and brothers and sisters, I think that is a beautiful response, isn't it? James and John, they come with, with, with fair questions. They're, they're worried about their life. They're worried about their status and, and their standing. And they, they, they want to secure riches and things for themselves, things that seem reasonable to us. But Jesus' response here is essentially, you don't have to worry about that. There's someone who has chosen your riches. They've chosen your status. They've chosen your position, how you will be glorified. And that person is God the Father. Leave it to Him. You don't have to fight and, and try and get status for yourself. You don't have to fight and try and get blessings for yourself. You can leave that in the Father's capable hands. And don't worry. The, the Father won't shortchange you. He's not going to rip you off. He will lavish gifts and blessings upon you. He's already chosen your lot in life, in this life and in the next. And Jesus essentially tells them to leave it to Him. Well, the world is full of people who are struggling. They're, they're, they're trying to figure out. They're trying to secure riches and a future for them. God Himself, God the Father, has secured riches for you. Better than any eye has seen or the heart of man conceived. So we can leave it to Him. Instead, we can live our lives not seeking our own glory and our own good, but, but instead seeking God's glory as Christ did. And so the question for us is, how, how are we living our lives? Are, are we trying to look after ourselves 
as James and John were when they started this passage? Are we trying to seek after greatness either here or in the life to come by our own effort? Are we seeking it in our own earthly kingdom? Or are we seeking it in Christ's eternal kingdom? More importantly, are we resting in Christ's finished work as the result or as the reason why we will receive grace upon grace? Are we trying to get our own glory, our own status? Or are we trying to fight for the recognition that we think we deserve in the way the world typically does? Or can we live as Christians, trusting in God the Father who has graciously given us our lot in life, in this life and the next? Because we don't need to live our lives in any sense playing office politics, trying to come up with crafty ways that we can get ahead, trying to push others down so that we can get higher up. But instead, we can follow Christ into His glory, trusting that the Father's got us. And we don't need to secure our status or our riches or glory. They're secured for us in Christ. And this is so important at this part point in Matthew because this would radically change how the disciples would live. The disciples, of course, are the main audience here. And they're being called to begin Christ's church. And the difference between people who are trying to secure their own glory, their own status, their own honor, versus people who are trying to secure Christ's honor, Christ's status, knowing that their own status is secure in Him. People who are trying to live for God's glory rather than their own glory. They'll live very different lives. And so that's true, especially for the disciples, and especially for office bearers today. But really for anyone who God has given authority to. When you're wondering, how will I use this authority that God's given me as a husband or as a, a wife, a, a, as a mother, a, as an elder, or as a deacon. Yeah. Because of this truth, you can lay yourself aside. You don't need to worry about your glory. You don't need to worry about your life or your status or securing comfort or rest or any of these things for yourself. Christ secured all these things for you. Instead, you can look at your authority, your power over the church or your family. You can look at it as a gift that you can try and use for God's glory so that others might go to Christ and they might believe in Him and follow His lead as we, too, seek to follow Christ's lead to the praise of His great name. So by pointing us towards His own suffering and submission, Jesus reveals the way that we should live and James and John should live as well. They had the wrong mindset about the kingdom. They thought it was a cutthroat place like the world is. But they were wrong. They had the wrong ideas about greatness as well. They didn't understand what Christ's kingdom would be like. And they didn't understand what it would take to be great in it. But continuing in our passage, we see that James and John weren't the only ones struggling with this, were we? The other disciples seemed to have the wrong mindset too. In verse 24 we read, When the turn ten heard about these things, they were indignant at the two brothers. I wonder if you know what indignant means. To be indignant means to be angry because of a perceived injustice, something that is wrong or unfair. And so why would the other ten disciples think there was something wrong or unfair about this? Almost everyone agrees it's because they felt like they wish they had thought of this first. They didn't want James and John to get those positions. They wanted those positions themselves. They, they knew more. They had worked harder. They wanted to be at Christ's right and his left. And so Jesus calls all of his disciples together at this crucial time because there's an opportunity for sort of 
a toxic workplace environment to develop right at the beginning of the New Testament church. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them what true greatness is like in his kingdom. And he teaches them that greatness is found not in being served, or not in serving, or sorry, not in being served, but in serving. So of course this is closely related to what Jesus was saying before. Jesus is addressing a very similar issue. But here Jesus is addressing the whole group and he's telling them how to live their lives. What does it look like to live not for your own glory, but for God's glory, having your, your glorification secured in Christ? And so Jesus addresses the whole group and tells them about his upside-down kingdom. And he does it by setting up a contrast. What Jesus wants the disciples to imagine in us is to think of the world. Or as he says in verse 25, think of the Gentiles, the rulers of the Gentiles. You know, if people get any authority in the world, what they tend to do is they lord it over the people in their charge. They try and use that authority to their advantage. And so Jesus brings their attention to the great ones among the Gentiles and how they exercise authority over those under them. And he wants us to really think about this, how this is a fact of life. It's true in politics. It's true in business. It's true even at school or in people's homes. As soon as you get a little bit of authority or power or glory, you try and use that to your advantage, even even over oppressing those under you. And the Roman Empire that Jesus was talking into, that was the context he was speaking into, was notorious for this. If you study into the Roman Empire at all, you'll see everybody knew exactly who they answered to and exactly who answered to them. If you had more people answering to you, well, then you were, in a sense, a better, more powerful person. People showed off how powerful they were by how many slaves, how many servants they had in their household. But Jesus says, thinking about this, thinking about how the world works, he has an evaluation for them and for us. Jesus says, not so with you. Jesus tells this to all of us, but first and foremost to his disciples. Because the disciples especially were called by Christ to be great leaders in the early church. What an honor. But that was going to look nothing like what we have ever thought of leadership looking like before. This was going to be something radically different. And Jesus wants them to know what their authority is going to look like. Because it's not going to look like what they're familiar with in business or in politics or anywhere else. And that's so important for us as leaders of families or as leaders in the church or leaders anywhere else. Because Jesus says here, it's not going to involve bossing people around or seeing how many people you can control or how you can make your own circumstances better. It's not going to involve anything like office politics or bickering about who's greatest or seeing who can get a leg up. But Jesus teaches us here that the opposite is true. Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. It's important to think for a second how absurd this would have sounded at the time. It would have sounded crazy. Servants and slaves were the most looked down upon of all. They spent their lives serving others. The word here is for, for servants is someone who, who waits tables. They just wait on somebody else. The word for slaves is someone who wasn't even considered their own person, but they were owned by somebody else. No one wanted to be a slave or a servant. They were considered people who existed only to serve others. 
They were expected to serve quickly, and they were expected to serve well without getting any credit or reward or anything. And this is what Jesus is saying. The calling to be members of his kingdom, and even more so the calling to be leaders in his kingdom, isn't a calling to be served, but it's a calling to go out to others and serve them as a servant or a slave. Taking all of your God-given gifts, all of your God-given life, and giving it away to others. And the question is, if the disciples were doing that, if they were living for others, and the question for us as disciples is, is this how we're living? Are we humbly living for others, seeing what we have as something that we can use for others? Or are we trying to exalt ourselves and get others to serve us instead? Because Jesus says, whoever would be great among you, among us, they must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, they must be your slave. And that is a high, high calling. Just hearing it, it sounds exhausting, doesn't it? Sounds like too high of a bar. But actually, Jesus goes so much further than that. He says, The first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the bar that Jesus sets for his disciples. The bar he sets for us. He calls us to serve others as completely, as wholeheartedly as he served us. That seems like an extremely hard calling until you recognize the beautiful message of the gospel in this passage, doesn't it? Yes, we're called to be servants. We're we're called even to be slaves. But many people, they, they get the idea that we're called to be servants or slaves so that we might become right with God. That we need to give up every ounce of our lives serving God if we're to be accepted, if we're to be good enough. But that's not what this passage says at all, is it? It says the very opposite. It says that the Son of Man came not to be served. Jesus didn't come for you because he needed more servants. He has plenty of servants. Countless myriads of angels. He, He didn't want you as a servant. God wanted you as a son or as a daughter. And so Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus knew we couldn't get back to God. We we couldn't do it on our own. We needed help. And he comes here and he says, I'm here to help. As John Piper put it one time, the the gospel isn't a help-wanted sign posted by God. It's a help-offered sign posted by God. Jesus came to serve us, to give us all that we need for salvation. And Jesus is pointing to himself and saying, as he came not to be served, but to serve, that's how we are to begin to serve others as well. And that means in order to understand our calling as Christians, how we ought to live for others, we need to look to Jesus and how he lived for us. And the good news about that is that that's a convicting thing to do. But it's also a beautiful thing to do, a wonderful thing to do. We should always be going back and reflecting on how did Christ serve us. So let's look at that for a minute. First of all, Jesus, or what extent was Christ willing to go to serve you? He tells us. He says, first of all, the Son of Man came. And that is remarkable. And if you know anything about the term, the Son of Man, that's drawing on Daniel chapter 7. 
There we read about the Son of Man. The Son of Man, a glorious ruler, and all the nations ought to serve him. Well, the Son of Man came to serve you. And where did he come from? It says he came, where did he come from? Well, we read that in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ came from above. He came from glory. He was in the form of God. But he came here. He gave it all up. Because he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There was something else he would rather do. For you and me, the Son of Man was willing to empty himself. How far did he empty himself? So far that the Son of God himself took on the form of a servant. And in being some people's servant, especially back in Jesus' day, there, there was some honor. If you were the servant of a great king, that could be an honorable position. There would be some glory there. Well, whose servant did Jesus come to be? That, that's rever- uh, revealed in what Jesus says next. He says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is the price paid to free a slave. So Jesus Christ came to be a slave to those who were enslaved. He came to be a slave for you and me. People who were enslaved by the power of the world, enslaved to the devil, enslaved to our own sin. Our own sin. Jesus came to be the servant of servants, wretched people like you and me. And so ransom is an important word because that means the price paid to free a prisoner, right? And the way that Jesus could pay that price was by descending and giving his life. Because that ransom wasn't payable in silver or in gold, but it was only payable in the Son of Man's precious blood. He came to give his life as a ransom in the place of us. He counted our lives, your lives and mine, so highly that he gave up his own life instead. He came and spent his entire life, every waking moment, as a servant of the lowest of the law, living the life we should have lived and ultimately dying the death that we should have died. He saw a wretch like me and a wretch like you, and he said, that one is worth dying for. I will become their slave for my entire life. I will drink the cup of my father's wrath down to the dregs for that one. I'll do it to serve them and to serve my heavenly father. And by God's grace, his life was accepted as a substitute in the place of the lives of many, of all who believe in him, because God has placed on Christ the iniquity of us all. And that's the good news. And in it, we can begin to see a picture of the way to greatness in Christ's kingdom. The very opposite of the way to greatness in the world. This has a lot to say to all of us, doesn't it? Because in our nature, there's a desire, a craving to be served, to be comfortable. And yet God tells us the way to true greatness is Christ-like service. We don't need anyone else serving us. We don't need our kids serving us. We don't need our employees serving us. Christ is serving us, giving us all that we need. Our calling now is to learn how to serve God helping us as Christ served us. And so we ought to pray that we might serve others as selflessly as Christ served us. And it's an unattainable goal. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, we can begin to try. 
So as we go home, as we look forward to the rest of the week, whatever role we're in, we should pray that we might see it in this way. As office bearers with God-given authority in the church, we're called to serve those under our church. How much to serve them as Christ served you? As parents, you're called to serve your children as Christ served you. As all people bearing the name of Christ, we're called to lay aside our pride and our selfishness. Leave that in God's capable hands and seek that we might glorify God and that we can serve Him and His people. We know we're not equal to this task at all, but we can ask Christ for help. Ask Him that we might not fall prey to the the way of office politics, of trying to craftily see ways that we can get ourselves ahead, even if it means stomping other people down. But rather, ask that we might have similar creativity for ways that we can put others above ourselves, that we can put God first, that we might find new creative ways not to serve ourselves, but new creative ways to serve others and to fulfill their needs, just as Christ came down to serve our needs. Amen.